topic of our sermon this morning is the Great Tribulation, and we're reading from Matthew 24, verses 15 through 26. Let me read it to you. And then, by the way, I would encourage you to read in the Olivet Discourse, I would encourage you to read the parallel accounts that are in Mark chapter 13 and in Luke chapter 21. And I'll add one verse from Mark chapter 13, verse 23, that is an extension, basically, of what we have here in, in Matthew 24, 15 through 26. In fact, if you look at the parallel between Matthew's words and Mark's words, they're almost identical. They're almost identical. So, Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 26. The Lord Jesus spoke. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there shall be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the, in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. And then Mark adds to the end of this portion of the discourse. In verse 23 of Mark 13. But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. One of the things I'm going to have to do is, I'm going to have to bring in, and we're going to have to have a little bit of a history conversation as well. And we're going to have to look at, to understand this passage, we're going to have to look at a little bit of prophecy in the Old Testament to understand what the Lord Jesus was saying at the time in which he spoke to his disciples. So there's history to be told here, there's prophecy to be considered in the past, in the Old Testament to be told here, and then there's something that we'll be able to grasp of what the Lord Jesus was teaching and saying to his disciples at the moment which he was instructing them. Remember, he had told them that the temple was about to be destroyed and that not one stone was going to be left upon another. And the disciples connect those words of the Lord Jesus to the end of the age. And so they ask the Lord Jesus basically two questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed and what will be the sign of that destruction? And when is going to be the end of the age and your coming or when the Messiah comes to set up the messianic age? And what will be the sign of your coming? And those were, they put the two together and they held them together. And the Lord Jesus doesn't tear them apart. He, in a sense, allows them to be together. This one prophecy of the destruction of the temple that's coming and also this idea of the end of the age. And to some extent, you'll see that that takes place with the Old Testament prophets as well. But the question that is being asked as you look at this passage, folks, this is somewhat of a technical passage, so hang on with me, all right? The question that's basically being asked is what is being prophesied here? To understand what the Lord Jesus is prophesying about here, it would be helpful for us to refer to Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12. And I'm not going to be able to take you through that because that will take us too long a time. But what you'll see is in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel begins to prophesy about the coming of the Greek empire some 400 years before it arrives. And the arrival of the Greek empire that is overseen by Alexander the Great. 
And then Daniel prophesies of the breakup of that kingdom into four various parts. And then two powerful kings rising up in the midst of that kingdom or the breakup of this Greek kingdom. And it's the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And they rose up. There was the king of the north and the king of the south. And they battled one another. And interestingly enough, the detailed information of all of the intrigue of the breakup of that kingdom of Alexander the Great is so specific that, well, prior to about 600 A.D., most believers and Christians just took it as a matter of fact that Daniel was seeing and prophesying these specific and particular details and it just showed the power of God to reveal what was going to ha- take place in history. Around 600 AD, there arose up a certain individual who was an atheist and this atheist looked at the text and he said, there is no way, there's no way that man can know what's coming that far in advance with that detailed account and with such historical accuracy because now they knew all the intrigues that took place in the Greek empire at that time. And so this had to be written by somebody after the fact. This had to be somehow written some 500 years after when we think Daniel lived. And so that was at least his theory and nobody took him seriously until liberal theologians came along at the end of the 1800s and then all of a sudden they started saying the same thing. Oh, this, this has to be, this has to have been written by somebody later than that fact. Well, I can't get into the details, but I can tell you that just analyzing the language and understanding the way of Hebrew literature and then also things that were discovered when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered where they found texts of Daniel that were written and they date them back to the very time in which the ending of this prophecy takes place in Daniel chapter 11, it, would, it became real. It's impossible. It was impossible historically for it to have been written in the late date that these skeptics were giving to it. But it's because it was so historically accurate. And at the end of his prophecy, he prophesies of an individual that will rise up out of this broken up Greek kingdom who will establish a covenant with the nation of Israel. And then he will break the covenant with the nation of Israel. And in the the holy place, he will establish a desolation or a desecration or an abomination to their worship. And that happened when a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes rose up. Antiochus was one of the great kings that rose up or one of the final great kings and he took over Jerusalem and he entered into a covenant with the Jewish people and then at some point in time he overtook the temple and he set up a idol to the god Zeus of which he believed himself to be the embodiment. That's why the name Epiphanes came in. He was the epiphany of or the epiphany of the revelation of this god and in the place of the temple he set up pig sacrifices on the altar in Jerusalem to Zeus and to himself. And this created a great battle that took place. The Maccabeans rose up. They overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. The people of Israel were rescued for a long period of time. At one point in time under the Maccabeans, they actually expanded their domain over Israel, almost to the full region that Israel had known under the time period of David and Solomon. Quite dramatic and quite wonderful. And this all happened in between the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. And so, very particularly, all that Daniel had prophesied came to be. In chapter 11, all those details are given. At the end of chapter 11, and the beginning of chapter 12 in Daniel's writings, there's a shift that takes place. Daniel takes this teaching that he gives of these specific events that are taking place during the empire of the Greeks, and he projects it out to the very end of the times. And something that's going to take place at the end of all time before the messianic age takes place. And now he projects it upon a new series of events. And he even speaks of and references 
that this abomination of desolation, that's what he calls it in Daniel chapter 11, he repeats that will take place in the very end of time, projected out in something that God is going to do that's far ahead of us and is not to be confused with what's going to be fulfilled during this Greek age. And so he takes specific historical information that God has given him about the Greek empire that's coming, and he talks about it in very specific details, and then all of a sudden he extends it out into a mystery of something that's going to happen at the end of the age, and then he talks about this great day that will take place in which there will be a trouble that will take place like nobody has ever known, and he talks about at that moment a general resurrection of the dead that will rise up before the end of the days in which all the righteous will be saved and all the wicked will be judged, and he speaks of in reference to that in the middle of all that in the final days, the final three and a half years of that time period that this abomination of desolation will be raised up in the temple of God. And so he goes from this one point in history and he acts out to the end of history, you might say. And that is exactly how we have to understand, and that is the pattern, you might say, that the Lord Jesus is using as he's speaking to his disciples about the destruction of the temple. They've asked about the, des- the destruction of the temple, and they themselves have put it and connected and projected out that idea to the end of the age, and the Lord Jesus leaves that intact for them. He allows them to see the one thing and project it out to the end, and Jesus answers in like fashion as they see it. And so first he speaks to them about, specifically about, the destruction of the temple, and then he turns it out into a broader language in which something of the destruction of the temple at that time is interwoven, but he's projecting out to something that's going to happen at the end of times before he comes. And it's in Matthew chapter 24, 15 through 26 in particular that we reread of this, primarily of this projection out to the end of times. It's in Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24, that we see what the Lord Jesus is saying about the immediate context, answering what will happen before Jerusalem is destroyed. Take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 24. So in a sense, what we could do is we could read Luke 21, verses 20 through 24 is the first section of what the Lord Jesus is answering. It can be like Daniel 11, and then we can read what he says in Matthew 24, and that can be like Daniel 12, the projection outward. And yet they're intermingled together. They're never entirely pulled apart, and... Here's what he says in Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Remember, at the beginning of 24, verse 14, he speaks of the fulfillment of the things that were spoken by Daniel of the abomination of desolation. But now he says, now when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know its desolation is near. Jerusalem's desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Interestingly enough, when Daniel prophesies about Antiochus and Epiphanes, in the, that prophecy indicates that at the end of the abomination that Antiochus brings about, that there will be rising up those who will lead them in a rebellion and they'll throw off the oppression of Antiochus and Epiphanes, which took place to the Maccabeans. And when you read of the expression of the great troubled times that will take place in Daniel chapter 12. We're told that in this great time of trouble that what will immediately follow is a complete deliverance of the people and this resurrection that takes place. But here in Luke, he says, after these things take place, they're going to be led away into captivity until the Gentiles are done trampling over 
trampling over the land until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so there are different things that are being discussed here, but they're similar. They're similar. There are those who want to look at what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, 15 through 26, and what he says in Mark chapter 13 in the parallel passage, and also in Luke, and they want to say that all of that prophecy was completely fulfilled in the time period in which Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and that all that is taken care of, and basically you can take all the apocalyptic messages that you find in the book of Revelation and Daniel, and you can all sum it up and tie it up into that one period of time in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, and we're done with it. We don't have to worry about that. Now we're just moving forward until the Lord Jesus returns, and it's becoming a popular position again in our day and age, and They see the words of Matthew and Mark as speaking to that time, as referring to that time that took place just before the temple was destroyed. So just a little bit of history again for you here. Back to 70 AD. This is only 30 or 40 years after the Lord Jesus has spoken these words of the destruction of the temple. Back at that time, four years before 70 AD, 66 AD, the Jewish people started to rebel against the Romans. And the Romans sent a general from Syria by the name of Gallus to come down, and he surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And he could have destroyed the city of Jerusalem at that time. But for some reason, he got nervous. Some speculate that he had broken his supply lines back to Syria, and he was a little concerned. And so he retreated from destroying Jerusalem at that time, which emboldened the rebels of the Jews. And so they came out from Jerusalem. They set up an ambush of the army of Gallus, and they created tremendous harm to his army, and they defeated a good portion of his army before Gallus was able to retreat back into Syria. And that didn't end things. That just began things. Because after that, a general by the name of Vespasian came and began to try to put down the rebellion. Vespasian ultimately became the emperor of Rome and got called back to Rome. And Vespasian sent his son Titus to come and put down the rebellion. And it's Titus that will show up in 70 AD and after a four-month siege will enter into Jerusalem and destroy it. And destroy the temple at that time. But it was in 66 AD, folks that Jerusalem was surrounded like we read in Luke chapter 21. It's the first time that's surrounded by the Roman armies and it's ready to destroy them. But there are individuals who look at this event and say this is an answer to all that was prophesied at that time and all of the horrible things that happened in 70 AD, that's the picture of the time of trouble that's greater than any other time in the history of the world up to that time and after that time and it was pretty bad. When Titus came into Jerusalem, it's, it's estimated by Josephus Most scholars disagree with Josephus' numbers and think that it was significantly less than this, but Josephus said, the historian Josephus, who was alive at that time and saw it taking place, Josephus said that there were 1.1 million Jews that were killed in Jerusalem at that time. He describes it, entering into the temple where they had all fled into the temple where the destruction was taking place, and when the Roman soldiers entered there, that the bodies were heaped up on top of one another, and the dead bodies were slithering off of one another on the ground in this great slaughter that took place. It's a graphic and horrible picture. And it was at that time that the temple was destroyed. But there are some other things that are kind of interesting if you study history. You'll find out that this fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD did not end the Jews' presence in Israel. It was not at that time that they were evacuated from Israel. That didn't take place until 135 AD. So some 65 years later. It was in a rebellion called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And Simon Bar Kokhba was a general that rose up who believed that he was the Messiah. 
and that he came as the Messiah to rescue the people and he led one final rebellion and they actually took over Jerusalem and they began minting their own money and they drove off the Romans again and the Romans came against them at that time and at that time they brought about such a great slaughter that most scholars again believe that it was greater and more significant that took place in the end of 70 AD. At that time there were so many Jews that were put into slavery that it was said that in the marketplaces of Hadrian, who was the emperor at that time, that it depressed the value of slaves so that slaves were being sold as for cheaper than a horse because there were so many of that were flooding the markets. And at that time, there's the over 580,000 soldiers, Jewish soldiers that were slain. Add on top of that all of the Jews that died from various diseases and famines and all the destruction that the Romans brought on the land at that time. At that time, we're told that the Roman armies destroyed 50 fortress cities in Israel. That means that the Jews were still around after 70 AD. They hadn't left the land. They still had all their fortified cities. And that there were 985 villages that were completely destroyed. That means that the Jews were still living in the land, occupying their villages, minting their coins, Not only that, after 70 AD, even though the temple was destroyed, the sacrifices didn't stop. They were still offering sacrifices on the temple grounds and the ruins of the temple grounds. And initially, by the way, they had a treaty with Hadrian that they could continue to do so on the temple grounds. But after the rebellion, Hadrian took over the city. He took over the temple. He banished the practice of Judaism in the land of Israel. He changed the maps so that the names no longer had the name Judea on the land, but he changed it to the word that we get Palestine for now, Syria, Palestina. And that's what he changed on all the maps. He refused to let any Jews enter back into Jerusalem at all, so they couldn't practice their Judaism, and they could not enter into Jerusalem at that time. This is 135 AD. This is 65 years after the prophecy of 70 AD that the Lord Jesus gave. He set up again a statue to Jupiter in this temple and a statue to himself. And he called for sacrifices to Jupiter in the temple. And then he collected all of the holy scrolls of the Judaic faith and he ceremonially had them burned on the altar in Jerusalem at that time. And at that point in time, it's estimated there were at least two million Jews in the land before this took place. After the Bar Kokhba rebellion, there's not 5,000 in the land of Israel. The Jews do not turn to Israel and have a center for their identity and their culture throughout all the time of history until just the modern period of time that we're in right now. They're totally banished from the land. That's even more significant than what happened in 70 AD. You know, oh, everything that was fulfilled and everything that was prophesied was answered in 70 AD. Well, no. Let's say 135 AD. Well, no. Let's say these things are expressions of these birth pangs that we talked about. Expressions of the cycle of God's prophetic movement in the days of the Lord expressing themselves and energizing the history of man until that final great and last spasm in which great tribulation will come upon the land. I think that probably is a better way to understand and look at these things. Well, History lesson's over for a moment at least. We might go back to it in just a little bit, but let's take some notes now from our text. I want us to just take away some things that we're looking at at these texts and understand what the Lord Jesus is speaking of. The Lord Jesus is speaking of that time that's coming at 70 AD, and the Lord Jesus is fanning out possibly to what happened in 135 AD, but we have to recognize it's a prophecy that's projecting itself out to the very end. It is language that reflects kind of the day of the Lord language that you find throughout the Bible in which there are 
intermediate days of the Lord in which you see these flashpoints of the day that's coming and the day that's coming, but there's a day that's coming to conclude it all, and the Lord Jesus ultimately has his eyes on those things, as did the disciples. But here's the first thing I want you to note here and take away from it. It's from what Luke says here. This is a time of vengeance. Write it down. This is a time of vengeance. Luke writes uh, the Lord Jesus' words, for these are days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. It's devastating language here. These words are particularly sobering. God has seen the sins of Israel through the years. He's not only seen it, but he's entered their sins in his record book. And now upon the unrepentant nation, he is about to exact payment. For years, the nation has accumulated their sins against God. And soon the cup of judgment, Jesus is saying, is going to be full and it's going to be poured out upon them. The gates of God's patience are going to be opened up and the flood of God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the land and they're going to be turned out from their inheritance and they're going to be tread upon from the time of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is complete. And we're still in that time. The end of the time of the Gentiles has not yet to be reached and What we need to take from this is that what is true of individuals is also true of nations as well. God keeps record of our sins individually, and he keeps record of the sins of the nations as well. He oversees the nations too, and he brings the nations into judgment. In fact, this understanding is what informed Abraham Lincoln when he wanted to give an explanation for the Civil War. And what he saw was the Civil War, the way he explained the Civil War was an explanation that there was a providential God who was ruling over all things and he held the nation into account for its sins. At his second inaugural address, he explains his understanding of why the Civil War took place. There were 750,000 soldiers that died during the Civil War. If we were to have it take place in our day and age, with the population base we have right now, and they were, the statistics were to be equal, it would be over 7 million dying during that period of time. And Abraham Lincoln expresses what he believes is the cause of this war in his second inaugural address. Let me quote this to you. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of the offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still must it be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We're paying. This is God's vengeance for our sin and the wickedness of our land. That's the profound words that Abraham Lincoln pronounced when he began his second term as president of the United States. This is God's judgment on this great sin of our nation. Now, God reveals to us 
that the end of the age will bring about one final moment and brings all the nations to account, but God also reveals that throughout history it's punctuated with cloudbursts of his wrath and of his vengeance upon the nations. It will end in this great period of the tribulation in which his vengeance is poured out upon the nations. It's their due. But one of the applications simply is this. Don't think that our land can escape God's vengeance. Don't think that our land can escape God's judgment for the evil and the wickedness that takes place within it. He notes it, he sees it, he records it, and he will demand a payment for it. Here's a second thing to notice here. There is in the midst of this judgment and in the midst of this vengeance a preservation of God's elect people before the prospect of wrath and vengeance. God brings mercy to his own at this time. Jesus in this passage gives warning that's to be heeded by his people. Warning if they follow it and heed it that will protect them. He warns them to flee Jerusalem when they see it surrounded. He warns them to guard themselves from false messiahs and don't go out for them when they're calling for us to go out to them or when they're making their plans in the inner rooms. The Lord Jesus told them that there were going to be persecutions that came and there were martyrdoms that were going to come to the disciples leading up to the time of the destruction of the temple. He also implies that this will continue to go on until the final day. And so he's not saying there's not going to be persecution, but he's also promising them that there's going to be an escape for the community as a whole if they'll obey his words. He'll watch over them and they'll keep them in the midst of these distresses and delivers them. So when God is about to destroy the world by a flood, He comes to Noah and he gives instruction to Noah and Noah obeys that instruction and Noah escapes the destruction of the flood. And when God comes to bring destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, he goes to Lot and he explains to Lot what Lot must do to flee and leave the place of destruction and Lot obeys and flees and he's not destroyed. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus, as he's speaking to his disciples and even prophesying this judgment that's coming in 70 AD, is giving them advice. He's giving them counsel so that they might escape that judgment. Back to a little bit of history for you. In 66 AD, when Gallus first surrounded Jerusalem and then inexplicably retreated when he could have destroyed Jerusalem, there rose up in the church, we're told, prophecies in the church in Jerusalem among the Jews that had gathered there and the Christians that had gathered there that this was a fulfillment of Christ's words that we read of in Luke chapter 21 that it's time for them to leave and flee and so at that time after Gallus left before the armies of the Jews followed them and brought destruction on them all the Christians were told got out of Jerusalem and left so that when by the time Titus came back and brought this massive destruction on the city of Jerusalem and killed over a million point one people the account was that no Christian was there and no church was there to suffer at all because they'd listened to the advice that had been given to them and, and actually during the Bar Kokhba rebellion Initially, there were many Christians in the land at that time as well, Christian Jews in the land of Israel at that time, and they initially joined the rebellion. And they joined Simon Bar Kokhba. Actually, his name wasn't Bar Kokhba at that time. He had a different name. And at some point in time, he took the name Bar Kokhba, which means son of the star. It was a messianic name. I'm the star that's rising up. I'm the one that's going to rescue you. And there was a rabbi that was the most famous rabbi at that time that began to declare that Simon Bar Kokhba was the Messiah. And Bar Kokhba began to call for people to come and join him and meet him because he was going to lead in a messianic reign over the people and he was going to deliver the nation. And now the Christians think, wait a second, we were warned of this. Don't go out to the wilderness where he's calling you. Don't go into the secret places where we devise our plans and our rebellions. And so they departed from Bar Kokhba at that time and Simon Bar Kokhba didn't like that and so he began to immediately persecute the Christians 
and demand that they denounce and renounce their belief in Jesus as the Messiah in order to be a part of the land. And they were forced to go over to the Romans to seek protection. And as a result, the Christians in the land avoided the great and tremendous, they, pers- they were persecuted, but they avoided the tremendous judgment that God brought upon the Jews in the land at that time because they obeyed God's voice and they heard God's warning. And These warnings are expression of the mercy of God in the midst of his wrath and his judgment. They remind us that God watches over his people to protect and preserve them as they obey him. This is not a promise that we're not going to suffer persecution, but it is a promise that he will preserve us when he pours out his wrath on the nations. He saves us from out of destruction. That's the idea we get here. Here's a third thing I want to point out to you. This should remind us that if God keeps his promise to bring judgment and vengeance and wrath, he'll also keep his promise to bring rescue and reward. The prophetic warnings of the abomination of desolation in Daniel 12 also include the promise of God that this great tribulation will end in a complete deliverance of Daniel's people. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. God has a plan for his elect people. He sets down his vengeance, but he also devises and sets down his plans for deliverance and We may be confident in both, absolutely confident in both. God has a plan for his elect to care for and watch over them. And this understanding and this confidence in God's word and the promises of judgment, but also the promises of deliverance, led J.C. Ryle, a bishop in England in 1856, to write about a day when all of the Jews will once again be in Israel. Interestingly enough, at that time, there was, like I said, very few Jews in the land of Palestine, and they had no nation, and they wandered around Europe, and they were being persecuted in every place. And yet, while seeing this thing and writing about this very passage we're talking about in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24, and discussing the destruction of the temple, points out that these things are merely the first expressions of a fuller projected judgment that God is going to bring at the end of the age. And in light of that, He speaks of another siege that's coming against Jerusalem, and he says this, quote, There's another siege coming against Jerusalem, which, quote, is yet to take place, listen to these words, when Israel is returned to its own land, and the second tribulation on the inhabitants thereof, which shall be stopped by the coming of Jesus Christ, end quote. It was 60 years after that about, that an Great Britain issued the Balfour Declaration saying that it was the intent to the people of Great Britain to make a homeland for the Jews in Israel again, some 1,800 years after they'd been pushed out. It was another 30 or so odd years, 31 years after that, that Israel became in 1948 a nation, a nation in Israel. And uh, J.C. Ryle Believing in the promises and the word of God to exact his vengeance, but also the word of God promising his deliverance, saw and understood it was to take place. Because we can count on things and can rest on these things. And let me just say, when you read the scriptures and you read what God says God is going to do and how God holds people to account for their sins and how God has provided forgiveness for their sins in Jesus Christ, and then you read for yourself what he's promised for you and the blessing he's promised for you, 
and the deliverance he promised for you and the care he promised for you and the home that he says he's providing for you, take it seriously. Take it as literally true. God keeps his word. In the midst of judgment, he remembers mercy. He remembers his own. He comes to us and he delivers us. We can bank on it. We can bank on it. Here's the fourth thing I want to say about this this morning. I want you to again note that in these hours that the Lord Jesus is prophesying about, rather near, referring to the time of 70 AD, or further on, referring to the time at the end of the age, in the midst of this great upheaval, in the midst of this great trial that's coming upon the people and upon the land, in the midst of this time in which there's great danger, there's also, above all everything else, a danger of great deception. So take note, in hours of great upheaval, there is the great danger of deception. We've been talking about this as we've been addressing this over the last few weeks. The message that the Lord Jesus delivered to them had basically only a few points of application. And the points of application are very important. It's don't be deceived. It's endure. Don't try to look for an easy, quick fix to the problems that you see. Endure. Go through it. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But endure. And then it's also, and this gospel will be preached in all the world. And then the end shall come. It's continue your mission. Don't be deceived. Endure. Continue your mission until the end. And you'll know when the end comes because I'll come for you. And you won't miss it. You won't miss it. So keep on with your work. But the danger here is this danger of deception So we have to be careful, we have to have our eyes open, we have to be careful that we're not deceived. As I said last week, the trouble with trouble is focusing on the trouble. When you're in times of difficulty and distress and trouble, the the, the trouble is that you try to solve the trouble, you try to escape this trouble, you try to find a remedy for the trouble, and you get your eyes off of what God is saying is taking place. He said, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be distresses. Endure. Don't be deceived. At a time like that, the one thing that you're supposed to be having signaling in your mind is, I need to be in the Word more than ever before. I need the Spirit of God to be speaking to me and teaching to me. I need to be surrendered to Him so I can read that Word and through His anointing I can understand His instruction and His will for my life. And I need to be obedient to Him and I need to be faithful to Him and I need to keep with the program that He's given us until He comes. Don't be deceived. Endure. Continue on your work of the Gospel. The end will come when you finish your job the job I've given you to do. Here's a conclusion for us all. The the common description that I'm hearing in all corners, doesn't matter whether they're they're believers or non-believers, talking to my neighbors, my friends, is this is a strange time we're in. Everybody seems to be confused. Just the other day, I was at my dentist office. You know, dentists have a habit of, well, they talk to you knowing that they have your fingers in your mouth, right? You can't say anything back, but they got their hands. And I'm listening as I'm there, and he's talking to the other, you know, the hygienist, the person who's handling the tools. And then he's talking to somebody else that's going on. And they're saying these very things. Saying words like, I don't understand it. She says, everything seems to be up, upside down nowadays. Right is wrong and wrong is right. And the lies that people are telling, we're being told that it's their truth. I can't get my head around it. It's too confusing for me. I don't know what to do. And the conversation is going on. They're not giving any answers to it, but they're seeing it. It's crazy. Everywhere around us, it's crazy. In your Bibles, when you read about the day of the Lord or the times when God begins to bring the nation into judgments, one of the things you see is that during that time, all kinds of weird anomalies begin to rise up. There's an upheaval that takes place in which there's an up heaval to the psychic order of the individual. There's an upheaval in the 
reason of the people. There's an upheaval in the morality of the people. There's a turning over of the social fabric at those times. The images that rise up in the language as the prophets speak about the day of the Lord are these cataclysmic language and these cataclysmic visions that it seems as though the world that we're entering to bizarro world. Everything is going strange and odd and the day of the Lord is, in a sense, this protected vision of this one ultimate conclusion which God brings all the nations under judgment when he comes to judge the earth and then bring his deliverance to his people. But the prophets also spoke of days of the Lord that happened throughout history. Times in which there was like this window opening up in which they got a glimpse through the suffering and the judgment that God brought upon the land. A picture of what was going to happen in that final day. And so there were all these days of the Lord. And when they speak of these days of the Lord, they add to the imagery this image of this state of chaos and confusion. Moral chaos, social chaos, literally physical chaos in the created order. It's all taking place. They speak of times in which, as they're nearing these things, in which uh, the whole fabric of life seems to be twisted up and anomalies are taking place and uh, the sun and the stars are darkened and the day turns to night and good turns to wrong. They see a time in which there are great winds that are blowing over the land and lightning and thunder is taking place and earthquake is taking place and there's chaos all around them. It's an image like this historically. It's almost like the prophets are seeing that the nations are about ready to dip into a vortex of God's judgment and as they're nearing that vortex of God's judgment, everything starts to rattle and become confused and the minds of the people are becoming confused. That's the way they prophesy it. It's as if they're reaching a point at which crazy breaks out. We know, we know it. We know when a, a pot is about ready to boil, it starts jumping all over the place. And when the people are about ready to be brought into a phase or a point where God is expressing his judgment, things just start going crazy. An example of this. A day of the Lord experience was the day that the Lord Jesus was crucified and died on the cross. At that moment, God was judging sin. He judged the sin of the world in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as that took place, and as he was suffering, and as the moment of that judgment was approaching, the whole earth went dark for three hours. Matthew tells us that the sun was darkened and then there were great earthquakes that took place and graves began to open up and there was wind that came and rocks were split and these are all described to us. What was taking place? Oh, the rattling, the anomaly of the day of the Lord coming upon us and the prophets speak about these things again as they approach that final great day of the Lord. This is what happens when judgment falls on the land and God reveals what is before us. But This is just like the reports the prophets gave us when they gave us visions of the day of the Lord. And as we've said, we know that things begin to jump when the pot begins to boil. So I have a question for you. Are things going crazy now? Are we getting into a little bit of crazy? What should it tell us? It should tell us this. Here's my conclusion. God has a plan. God executes his vengeance. God protects his people. He does not abandon his people. He protects his people. Even when evil is intensifying, God is ready to wrap up the world in his judgments and he's ready to wrap up his people in his mercy and his grace. That's what it should tell us. That's what it should tell us. What's the takeaway of all these things? Don't go crazy with the crazy. All right? Don't lose your head over these things. Endure endure trust him rely on him be obedient to him 
Guard yourself against temptation. If you think things are crazy, it's not to go and read more about the crazy. It's not to spend your time researching how crazy it's getting. Get into your Bibles. You need discernment. Call upon the Spirit of God to give you wisdom. You need discernment and knowledge and wisdom so in obeying Him, He can lead you to places of safety and He can guard you. Endure. Don't be deceived. Don't run after quick promises and easy solutions and messianic answers to our problems. When Christ comes, you'll know it. And then the end will come. So be faithful to the mission he's given us. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful until he comes. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Whatever the day, O oh God, wherever our moment within it, we are to some extent like Daniel, to a lot like Daniel. Lord, we don't understand. We don't know these things. The revelation seems to be that it's not for him to know and it's not for us to know completely, but it will be known in the moment, in the hour, and when it takes place. But for us, for us, it's to put our eyes upon you, to rest in the salvation we have through Jesus Christ, to rest in you and trust in you, to live out in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the faithfulness to you that would allow us to see ourselves as sinners saved by grace with nothing to gain for ourselves in any position we take in the midst of the craziness, other than that we cling to you and our righteousness comes from you. In that situation, oh God, we're rescued from making judgments upon others, individuals. We're rescued from the divisiveness of our day and age. We're just sinners saved by grace. And what we proclaim is a Savior that can save anyone who looks to Him. An answer for the deep fear and anxiety they have is found in a Savior who has met, who's met their judgment at the cross, died for their sins, risen from the grave, and can come and live in them and give them a peace that the world cannot give. A peace that He lives with us. And Lord, here is a time and an hour in which it's for us to prove the reality of that truth. My peace I leave with you. God, confident in you, resting in you, whatever might be before us, before persecution and trial and testing, when the anomalies of judgment are rising up around us, we rest in you. We trust in you. Lord, let us be fixed points for those being tossed on this stormy time in history. Fixed points. Resting and trusting you, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.